Have you ever met one of those people who just can't be stopped? It's like they're unstoppable. Yeah, I have. Me too. What's their mystique? Nothing stops these people. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso. You're about to meet some of the most amazing people. They've accomplished their goals despite insurmountable odds. They beat adversity, physical hardship, and traumatic events, and emerged triumphantly. They're people just like you and me, and they're winners. Are you unstoppable? Here's Frankie to show you how. Hello there, and welcome to Mission Unstoppable. We're just, eh, we're not that late. <laughs> you know me. That's how it always goes. Um, warning, if you don't want to be inspired, motivated to act, or do anything but sit on a couch, as my guest is doing, tune out now. My guest today will be pl- plugging yourself into a nuclear power source. I promise you that. Corey Poirier is a multiple-time TEDx, Mondays and PMX speaker. He's also the host of the top-rated Let's Do Influencing radio show, founder of the speaking program, founder Blue Talks, and he's been featured in multiple television specials. A columnist with Entrepreneur in Forbes magazine, he's been featured in and on CBS, CTV, NBC, ABC. He's a Forbes Coaches Council member and one of the few leaders featured twice on the popular Entrepreneur on Fire show. Now, if you don't know who John Lee Dumas is, he is the host of EOF and kind of the who's who of podcasters. To date, he has interviewed Corey has over 6,000 of the world's top leaders. He's also a practicing yogi and rock recording of the year nominee. Yep, that's right. We said that. He just launched his 12th book, The Book of Why and How, Discover the Timeless Secrets to Meaning, Success, and Abundance, which we are going to talk about in depth in just a few minutes. Uh, Corey is the father to his young son, Sebastian, and newborn, Elijah, and he's also the boyfriend to Shelly and the father to, I never know if it's two or three because sometimes I see both, fur babies. <laughs> How many do you have? Uh, we have two. Two now. Okay. Yeah. Corey, I am sure that you hear this all the time, but you are busier than what we say is a one-armed paper hanger. Um, how did you learn to accelerate time or add more than 24 hours to your day? Well, it's, it's a great question, and I'm going to be on the move for one second, Frankie, and I'll, uh, I'll answer the question while I'm on the move because uh, you mentioned the newborn. And so that's the new challenge. And I, I hear him because I'm working from home today, which is why I was at the couch. And I hear him crying and stuff. Aww. And I think, you know what? All right, we get a look. All right, I'm so excited. Well, no, no, I meant the other way. He's, oh. uh, his mother's watching him. I meant uh, I want to get us away from there a little bit so that oh, okay. on the sound okay. side, we're not listening to a crying baby. Uh, so I, the question was, how do I manage so much in the run of a 24-hour day? Is that the question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you, like, you do so much, so, you know, uh, just absolutely so much people would say, well, how do you do that? How do you fit all that in 12 books, you know, coaching, teaching, inspiring, uh, talking like, wow, you've got, I know that you're running like multiple programs simultaneously. Like really, how do you do well, it? And, and you have a newborn. Yeah. And-, and on top of all that too, what we're also in the process of doing is we just bought a new house and we have to move out uh, this one and be in the other one in the next five days. Oh my God. So, <laughs> so uh, but happy to answer the question and really comes down to, for me, uh, what I'll call time blocking. Mm-hmm. So what I do really is I decide what I'm going to work on at this point in the day. And then I work on that at that point in the day. And okay. it sounds easy, but there's definitely a lot of discipline involved in it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what I mean by that is that if you say, okay, for, uh, from 
let's say on Tuesdays from two, 10 to 2, so 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., I do interviews. Mm-hmm. And that's the only time I do media. It takes a lot of discipline, A, to turn down a good media opportunity if, you're, if that's not your time, or B, uh, it takes a lot of discipline to only do it during that time. And I guess you could flip it and say it also takes discipline to actually do it right. <laughs> during the time. And so now for me, um, you know, for example, I used to be only Tuesdays for interviews. I've changed that up a bit. Now I'm a little more fluid. I made the decision to be a little bit more fluid. And so I kind of go to where it makes sense to do the interview and I work it around the rest of my stuff. But I still, because the interviews are usually booked weeks or months in advance, I can actually still book everything else around it. So now I'm a little more flexible, but I definitely book around stuff. And before, and it's what I recommend people do early on if they want to be highly productive and a high performer, is don't be flexible. You know, say, okay, uh, today I'm going to work on, let's say, my writing. So writing a book or writing or what have you. That's what I do every Wednesday uh, from this time to this time or all Wednesday, whatever it works like for you. And writing could be the whole day. So you could spend three hours on a book. Then you could write, you could spend four hours writing articles for different like entrepreneur or Forbes sure. or whoever you write for or want to write for. Uh, so that would be how I would structure one day. And then, like I say, the very next day could be all interviews. And then the other three days could be sales, you know, sales related. So the long way to say that, and, and, and the long answer is really that I, I say, what's a priority? So what's a time management? Priority? Exactly. And then what, and then I time block based on this is what I do during this time. And nothing else can get in. I mean, that's so the you don't you don't go by. Oh, well, I kind of don't feel like it today, so I'm not going to do that. You're just more disciplined and say, "This is my day to do this, and I'm going to do it, whether it Absolutely. comes or not." Absolutely, 100. percent And I will say, so to dial into this a little bit further, because it's something I don't talk about often, but there it goes even one step behind that. So one of the things I talk about is making sure if you say I'm going to do this for this hour, then you shouldn't have interruptions. Again, I've I. I built the foundation enough that now I can allow interruptions if they need to happen because sometimes the interruptions are my A priorities. Right. Well, but having said that, here's how I, so I'm going to talk about strategy. Here's how I eliminate most distractions. So all I have to do to eliminate distractions is to have the discipline that when I'm working on something, I don't have my computer up and it, all my notifications are turned off. So I don't hear any dings. Uh, I say that now and it'll call me a liar because I, <laughs> the only one that dings is my text. Yeah. But, I don't get texts on my computer often because it's only people that have an Apple or an iPhone. Right. So it's the only one that dings. And uh, I just haven't taken the time to learn how to shut it off, but it's so rare. I don't worry about it as much. But my point is, uh, other than that, I wouldn't know if you were trying to reach me. I wouldn't know if an email is sitting there waiting for me. And then the other part to that is turning my phone on silence. And so I could have 10 people calling me right now and I would never know. Yeah. So I guess what I'm getting at is, on the back end, I'm building a bit of stuff in place so the interruptions don't come in. And then on the front end, I'm practicing the discipline to not allow the interruptions to make their way in. So and I know, I, yeah. And I know you said this in multiple places on, on TEDx and in the book and, and different places. And, you know, I can hear the, the excuses coming, but what about, what about, what about, what about? Doesn't matter. What about, you know, as an entrepreneur, uh, I work from home. My television never goes on until seven o'clock at night. Like it just doesn't go on. I don't care if I'm doing nothing. It's not going to go on because it's a distraction. And, you know, you can get into doing all kinds of stuff when you have to do other things. I think that's how you build extra time into your day. But not, but I hear you do have a guilty pleasure of Netflix. So <laughs> Yeah, I, I do. But here's the weird part about that is it's a guilty pleasure and this is going to sound strange, but I think at the end of the day, 
it's what works for you works for you. And so for me, what works for me really well is if I'm not on an interview, if I'm not on a call, so if I'm working, uh, whether it's, you know, preparing something for blue talks or um, sending stuff off to somebody to prepare a flyer for us or whatever that is, if it's, if it's kind of work that I can do with and have something in the background and still be working, the guilty pleasure of Netflix is I'll put stuff on that I've seen a lot of times. Yeah. And I like the comfort of it playing in the background, even though I'm only taking in less than 5% of it. And so a lot of people, again, would argue that's a foolish thing to do because it's uh, it's a distraction. There's, uh, you know, you're not fully in the moment and all that kind of stuff. But again, what works for you works for you. So that's the yeah. guilty pleasure. Like I don't really have a whole lot of time to sit down and watch Netflix per se. Uh, we, my girlfriend and I were talking, I don't know the last time we've seen a new movie, you know, having a seven week old, a yeah. three year old moving me launching a brand and all that other stuff. It just doesn't allow time for that. But I will tell you the guilty pleasure TV show we watch together and that we do uh, actually watch and not just have it on the background. And most people probably haven't heard of it, but it's a show called Ridiculousness. And it's on MTV or much music, depending if you're in Canada, or the US. And essentially what it is, is it's like a YouTube show. They basically take a whole bunch, they take clips. And the, the guy that uh, runs it is a former skateboarding pro. And what he does is he sends a questionnaire to the people that are going to be guests and asks you, uh, what's your favorite show? What's your favorite this and that? And then he builds the themes around those answers. But the, what the show is really is they just scour the internet, find hilarious clips of things, That's and put funny. them into a theme and then run the clips. And so her and I find it's, it's something we can watch with the kids there. I mean, you know, truth sure. is we probably shouldn't be watching it with the kids there, but, <laughs> but the three-year-old doesn't pay attention and he's in the other yeah. room and stuff like that. And obviously the seven week old, I'm going to assume he doesn't know what's coming in yet. And there's no swearing. It's all beeped out and stuff. But what I'm getting at when I say watch uh, with them in the room is I mean, if they distract us, it doesn't matter yeah. because it's not a show that you have to pay attention to the whole show you just have to catch yeah. the funny clip you're watching yeah. uh, but it's like america what's that america's funniest videos it's basically like that for adults okay so again it's probably not uh parenting 101 but uh <laughs> but i don't know if, as people have seen through the pandemic i don't know if there is parenting 101 i don't know if people knew that you're a comedian or not but you you, you started off in comedy and and transitioned into speaking um which is you know kind of a why wouldn't you watch and laugh and have a good time i mean you kind of have to do that and it's a decompression kind of thing too I would imagine so Corey I wanted to talk to you like it's Mission Unstoppable and I like people to understand how people you know started their journey and how they got to be where they are today and you know you talk in the book and at other places about um, you weren't a great student you didn't read a book until your late 20s you kind of were that couch potato we talked about at the beginning of the show and all and then something happened and I guess a light bulb went on and you went boom I'm going to change my life so what happened where did you start what what was it like growing up as little Corey um what happened yeah so growing up as little Corey I was grew up in a small little tiny town uh it was even called a town then now it's a city but just because they amalgamated every every place nearby uh, to get it up to enough people to have a city, but it's still the same town, really. And I grew up in this small town. I was raised by a single mother. Uh, why I always add that is because she taught me so many life lessons, but also um, being raised by a single mother, financially, we weren't, you know, we weren't living high in Flush. the hall. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I, I, at the lowest of the low, uh, and this is, I mean, this isn't as low as a lot of people get, but the lowest of low for us is 
there were times when we couldn't afford supper. And uh, one night she asked me if she could use some old collectible coins, if I minded, if she could use them to buy us supper. Uh, I tell a story every now and then about how uh, she had to work two weeks overtime to buy me a winter jacket. Oh, you know, so yeah. it, it wasn't like, I don't know how to describe it, but it wasn't like, um, you know, I'm not going to say we lived in the car, but at the same time, we were maybe only, you know, uh, two paychecks ahead of that type thing. Right. And so having said that, uh, that played a big part in my life too, because uh, I ended up discovering the Boys and Girls Club. And that was a way that I could play the sports that we couldn't afford to buy me the equipment to play normally. And that had a really big impact on my life. You know, from the leadership point of view, I saw what these people were doing to give back to others. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I didn't realize at the time, but later on, I would see uh, how big of an impact that had on my life and how it made me feel equal to all those kids that were at the Boys and Girls Club. You know, if I would have been at hockey and not been able to afford ho- go- good goalie pads, I wouldn't have sure. felt equal. So. Right. So that, on that side, that played a big part in it. So that was kind of my beginnings. As you said, um, I alluded to, I barely graduated high school. I often say I got a 49 plus one. So I often say I didn't technically or legally graduate probably, <laughs> but a teacher gave me the plus one that allowed me to graduate. Uh, I left school without knowing the difference between fiction and nonfiction. I, um, I basically uh, went years so into my mid-20s before reading a single book cover to cover and so that you know that's the first part you asked you know what what was it like before that was the starting point and uh so when did it change is what you asked as well so it changed when I read that first book and the first book was called how to win friends and influence people great book uh, by Dale Carnegie and I did I read it about 20 age 27 I think we're gonna have a cat coming to say hi here soon too Uh, uh, but age 27 I read that book my mother bought it for a quarter Threw it in my kit bag. I was coming on a company retreat and, uh, and basically got bored on the retreat and read the book and it, I couldn't put it down. Loved it and read it cover to cover. <laughs> hey, Tantra. Say hi. hi say hi. Everybody say hi, Katie. <laughs> Usually if I say get her to say hi or somebody says hi to her, then she's okay. Uh, but yeah, so the, uh, I went on that trip. I was bored. I read the book. Couldn't put it down. Read it cover to cover. I read it a second time that weekend. So I jokingly have said it's the first and second book I've read in my life. And uh, up until that point, I did try to read three, sorry, four other books. Uh, Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Death of a Salesman, Lord of the, Rain, uh, Lord of the Flies, rather. And then I tried Cujo. And it wasn't that it scared me. It was just it didn't pull me in the book. The movie scared the heck out of me. Yeah. But the, the book didn't pull me in. And so I tried four books. It didn't work. It the didn't stand stick. was scarier. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the movie, the stand? Not the movie, the book. Oh, the book. I don't think I read it, actually. Oh, my God. The scariest book I think he wrote. Okay. I'll have to maybe go back and check that out. Uh, So I I didn't read those. I didn't finish those books. I started them. And Mm -hmm. if anybody, if they sound familiar, the ones that I said, those three, they were books that we were assigned in school. Yeah. And I just found ways around. That's why you didn't read, like, the Jack London stuff or... I mean, you're Canadian. <laughs> I don't know. Just no, I, di- I didn't read. I mean, I didn't read any stuff. I didn't. I honestly didn't see the purpose of reading. It didn't pull me in. And that Dale Carnegie book, the first story, and I can even tell you what the first story is. I mean, obviously, I've read the book many times since. Sure. But but the first story is about this guy named Two Guns Crowley, and he tells the story about how, in our minds, he was this terrible gangster. But how, in his mind, he's like, "Why does the world hate me? I haven't done anything wrong to anybody." And he was talking about the perspectives of how to yeah. that person, they're not doing anything wrong and they can only see their, their point of view. And so, but if the storytelling was so masterful, it pulled me and it didn't let go. And that really started my love of reading. You know, I now read three to five books a month, most yeah. months. Yeah. Uh, it started my love of reading. So that kicked it off. You said, where did the change happen? The second change happened around the same time, which was when I started performing stand-up comedy. I got tricked into it. 
but I ended up going, I kept going back week after week and then discovered uh, professional speaking because I found that you could get paid to do this where with comedy, you don't make so much money. Uh, so I got into uh, speaking and then the rest is history. That kind of opened up the doors for everything. So like you, you, you seem obsessed with, with super achievers, you know, with, with the super uh, success, um, not necessarily monetary success, but those who, who, and, and, you know, you pursued that passion by interviewing like over 6,000 people. So, or close to 6,000, I'm sure it's be lots more before your life is over. But, you know, it's really interesting when we think about, when I think about you, you know, from a really little town in Prince Edward Island, um, Nowheresville, Canada, you know, and, and you have accomplished so much in so little time, really. You know, it's pretty impressive. I have to say that. I don't think Canadians ever get their due, so I have to give you the due. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And I have to say, uh, in recent years, I'm starting to realize when I have Islanders, so fellow Islanders come up to me and say, you know, I've been following you for this amount of time. And just the fact that you've been able to do this reminds me it doesn't matter where you're born and, and all that kind of stuff. It's and I never, view, I never view myself that way. But when I, when you have that said, it really kind of reminds you, I guess it becomes sort of a driver, but it reminds you that there's no small impact. There's no small action. I mean, anything yeah. you do could impact a life. That's right. Wouldn't you want to. And, and which is really great segue into how, you know, your, you know, one of your, your sole purpose really is to, is, is to um, make a difference is, is to help people that, that's built right into the core of, you know, of what you do. So in your mind, the vision for helping others or changing the world or whatever it is, um, what does that vision look like? What does it feel like? So I, I, I my, or the legacy of that. Yeah. Well, and people ask me, what's my mission? What do I want my legacy to be? Things like that. And yeah. I have a mission statement. That's pretty simple. It's it is. To be the guy who motivates, donates, inspires, educates, and entertains. And the reason I'm doing it, my bigger why is to create a positive ripple in everyone's ocean that I come across with, even if it's only for five minutes or it could be a lifetime. And so what it looks like to me is just, and this is going to sound strange and it's not to minimize it, but it's really doing what's right mm -hmm. and doing what's right to me, which by the way, governed by my mission statement, you know, am I motivating? Am I donating? Am I inspiring? But to do what's right, isn't as hard as we make it, you know, so I could sit there and say, okay, um, I'd use an example, but if I'm launching like my Bluetox brand, if we had, and we did, we had, um, let's say the speaking uh, component, live speaking, we have the virtual events and we have the book chapter that people are involved in. Well, we decided to add a virtual event and the temptation could be to say, um, okay, well now I'm going to charge people to be involved in this virtual event because it's a new element we added. But for the people that basically supported us from the start, to me, the other part was what's right. And to me, what's right was to give them to over deliver and say, Hey, I know you thought you'd probably end up paying for anything new, but you're not going to have to. And so it's a simple decision. You know, sometimes you might go, okay, well, um, you also got to look at what's realistic. You know, you're putting in an extra 500 hours a week to do it, or sorry, a yeah. year to do it. Yeah. Then you might have to make a different decision. But I guess the other side is doing what's right. Can we do that without putting in all this extra time? And we could. So, and, so I'm going to stop you there for a second because where did that come from? Does that come from the, from the kid who's single mom, you know, scrapped and scraped for every little bit? And so you think, geez, it's hard for people to come up with extra cash. Or, or is it that I just have, you know, I, I'm so passionate about what I do and I really want people involved. And, you know, if I can 
over deliver. I'm going to do that because it's like you said, it's the right thing to do, but it's, it, that's a core value of yours. I mean, not everybody would have that same value, but I think because you have that value and just like with the law of attraction, right? You are, you are attracting others with that same mindset, I believe. So I, I feel like I'm sure there's a big part of it that came from my mom uh, and we'll say for better or worse, because my mother is um, uh, a giver, giver, giver. And admittedly, and, and I've always, anything I've ever said on the air, I've, I've talked to my mom about, am I okay saying this? And she said, she said, yes, then I know I am. And in this case, she said yes. And she's not as good of a receiver. She struggles. Givers and, aren't. Which is really wild, I think, Frankie, because people think automatically it's so much easier to take or, or receive. But I can tell you there's like, cause people, everybody thinks, oh, it's, it's hard to give, but it's not hard to receive because you're getting something. But there's a lot of people yeah. that have a real big uh, problem. True givers have a problem receiving and you have to, something that they have to learn to do because it's, everybody wants to have, you know, the enjoyment of giving. And if you don't let them, then, you know, you're doing them a disservice. Absolutely. And that's, and to, to that point, I, uh, you know, I, I, I would say that the giver side was easier because I saw it all my life. Yeah. The receiving part has always been a challenge and it, 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 you know, I'm never going to say it's going to be easy. It's, it's become easier. And I've, I've, you know, somebody might say, Hey, I want to, I want to connect you with so-and-so and it wouldn't be abnormal in the past for me to say, Oh no, don't worry about that. You know, they, oh. they might be wanting me to wanting to connect me with the person that could change my entire life and mm-hmm. I can't see it. And it, it took me a while and I wrote about it in my latest book about the fact that it's only healthy when you're able to give and receive equally. And yeah. the truth is I'm almost there now. I'm still not there. I'm not going to like anything doesn't, when you're writing about something, it doesn't mean you're perfect at it yet, but it means you know better. You're learning. And when you fall off the horse, you still get back up. And so I think I got it from my mom, but the receiving she struggles with and the receiving I struggled with for a long time. And, you know, tell you how far that is. I won't name drop on this, but I've had some really big names with some really big networks after I've done a powerful interview with them say, you know, how can I, how can I give back to you? How can I help you? And then I would say, uh, you know what, let's just put it in the, um, put it over here in the bin and I'll ask if I ever need it. But the problem with that is when you go back to that person three years later, two years later, it doesn't have the same energy around it. And they might even say, Oh, you know, I'd love to help, but yeah, exactly. So why wouldn't I do it at the time? But that's what I'm saying. Like receiving was the harder part. So if I'm being full disclosure, receiving has always been harder for me. A little bit embarrassing. Yeah. But now um, it, it's way better. Like I'm, yeah. I'm probably, I'm probably like 110% of giving and I'm 90% of receiving. Good. I, I like, like that. I was at 20%. Well, at least it's not the reverse because, you know, people who only take, it's not nice. I mean, that doesn't feel good. Right. No, well, at least I'm not saying it's a good thing, but at least on the giving thing, when you're yeah. giving, you get the, the feeling of giving, which that I think that's, to be honest uh, about that, I actually feel sorry for the people that only take because I think they don't realize the feeling and power you get from giving. And I don't mean power in like a power way, yeah. I just mean like the, what it does for your energy, the energy uh, supply it gives you when you give for them heart and for no apparent reason and no expectation and no agenda it's so rewarding to you. And I actually think like people like, Oh, he's a taker. So he'll always get ahead of me. I don't think so. Uh, at least from a personal wealth yeah. point of view, they're actually further behind you because they don't know that experience. So yeah, I, I think it's I, the perfect scenario is to be good at giving and good at receiving. I agree with that. Um, okay. The book of why that, you know, your latest book, 12th book, um, 
forward by, by James Redfield wrote Celestine Prophecy. I mean, how extraordinary is that? Really made it magical for me, you know, and probably everybody else who, who, who reads that forward. Um, it's very inspiring. And, and I really, you know, it was a great way to open up that book because what you're giving in that book is, is really the ability for people, you know, if you already know some of that stuff, they'll, you know, you broke it into what you say, three acts. And, and so if you, if you don't know anything, you read the whole book. If you know a little bit, you can start, chop, you know, in the second act, if you know everything, you know, there's always something to learn. And, and I think that was, that was kind of the message is that it doesn't matter how great you are, the Jack, you know, the Jack Canfields of the world still believe that they can learn another little something, a nugget. Um, there's a nugget in everything. So, so don't give up on learning and don't think that, you know, everything because the people who, who think they know everything actually know nothing. Right? So, okay. That's really, that's really in a nutshell, I think. So why was it so important for you to write this book? You know, I said this the other day for the first time and I never analyzed this before or thought it through to this level, but I don't feel I wrote the book. I think the book wrote me. And what do I, I mean? Channeled? I think so because so the other side of my backstory, which you alluded to in the bio about the, the music side. And so I put in four CDs years ago uh, toward all the, you know, all the stuff that comes with being a musician. And I wrote almost every song. I, I wrote every song except for maybe two songs on the four albums. And those songs, I can tell you which ones were channeled and which ones I wrote. Oh, yeah. And so when I say that, which would sound weird to somebody who, who hasn't had that experience. And by the way, while I was having the experience, I didn't feel like this was being channeled. My hand's just going on its own. Yeah. But while I was doing it, I was able to flawlessly rhyme, put everything together, have everything make sense without me thinking what makes sense with this. But then other songs, when you labor over them, you're like, okay, well, what word is going to actually rhyme with this? Like you, you hear it on Friends <laughs> of Orange, you know, and like, so the, there is that side of, for me. I do, I have both sides. I have the side where I'm writing yeah. a song and I feel like I have a song that writes me. And so this book, I feel like was dying to get out and maybe I just happen to be the vessel. I'm not sure. Uh, but why did this book and why uh, this book for me is so important is unlike my other books, which I, you know, I value them all, but there's no back end to this. So my other books, and, and I'm speaking now, like somebody listening that doesn't, isn't into the book business that just reads books, when I say no back end, they're probably going to be like, I don't know what you mean. And if I start explaining it, people are going to be like, there's what? There's a back end on most books. But most people that have been successful with books have a back end to it. And what I mean by that is they have, for example, in the book, they might say, you know, if you'd like to learn how to become a professional speaker, reach out to me. Or they might have sign up for your free whatever here. And then when you get into that funnel, that way of right. going through the channels, there's something they're offering you. Well, this book doesn't have that. And it's the only book I think out of all my books that doesn't really have a natural back end. And it's because it felt to me like the book again, that was written by itself. And it felt more like the four agreements or the alchemist or the, um, or Celestine prophecy in the way it was written than it did. Let's say like a book by maybe Russell Brunson about click funnels, which actually, you know, helps you learn how to use click funnels, but then also is the back end of click funnels. And so that's there, everything about this book feels like it was trying to write itself and it didn't give me a choice. And it also didn't give me a choice on uh, me trying to do the book only for the sake of building a back end around it. And so within the book, there's three acts, as you mentioned, first act is dedicated to finding your why, but then also I asked these four questions around why, which I heard Jim Rohn deliver in a keynote one time. And so I took the four headers. I never took one word of what Jim Rohn said in his keynote, but it, what he said was he said, you know, why? And then he started talking about why. And he said, why not? 
And then he started talking about why not? And then why not you? Why not now? And so I basically posed those questions. Why shouldn't it be you? And then, you know, as Jack Hanfield and Mark Victor Hansen could have said, why bother writing Chicken Soup for the Soul? Somebody else will. But guess right. what? Nobody ever did. And it needed to be those two guys in that order. And so I basically addressed those things in this first chapter. So helping you find your why and then also making the case why it has to be you, why it has to be now, all those kind of things. Act two is the summary of what I've learned after these 6,000 interviews about what the high achievers do differently. And that's the how part of the book. How can you do this stuff? And then the last act is about, it's called Enlightened. And it's essentially, how can you do this stuff and still be able to sleep at night? How can you do this stuff like Zig Ziglar did, where not only did he pull you up to the top with him at the top of the mountain, he also got behind and pushed other people up to the top of the mountain. So how can you do it in a way where you can sleep at night? And then I also go into things like self-care and, and you know, sweat lodges and meditation and stuff like that, kind of an awakening. And then the bonus section of the book is 400 quotes original quotes by people I interviewed from those interviews. And so why I shared all that and dialed, I went through all of that as far as the book, you can tell it's, it's not a traditional business book. It's really a book designed to help you go to the next level in your personal life. And, you know, and obviously that's going to impact your professional life. So that was a long answer to say, Frankie, it's because the book wanted to be out and it wrote itself through me. Well, I think, I think in, um, James Redfield alluded to it at the beginning. And I think that for myself, I've seen it happening, you know, spiritually, there's an awakening on the planet. And I feel like the book is part of that awakening because, you know, and it's, it is about social impact because it's, you know, you're saying, okay, you're going to get to a place where you're going to be successful and you're going to be able to give back and it should actually be built into it anyway. And, and so I, I think that is, you know, your, your gift to, to that awakening. In a way. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's so humbling. Yeah. Well, I I don't know if it's humbling, but I I do believe that, um, that it's there. And I think that is what's so extraordinary. You see, a lot of people, they fear giving away their knowledge because they think other people are, are going that that's a lack mindset though, but they fear giving it away. They think other, Oh, if they know that, Ooh, they know my secret to success. So, you know, uh, they're going to get ahead of me or they're going to, you know, be better than me or whatever. But it, you're like so generous with, with your knowledge. I mean, look at all these people, 6,000 people. Hey, you don't have to, you don't have to interview 6,000 people. You just have to do what the, you know, the top 10 said to do. And here it is right here. I just have to go here and read it. And that's part of, you know, one of the keys of action that, that you talk about is don't waste your time going everywhere. Go to a source, one source where you get all your information from. And you're a source where you, people can get success from and, and read this book and boom, you know, Bob's your uncle, right? you know how to do everything. <laughs> and, and you know what? I, I, what my tagline used to be on the speaking side is, um, yeah, and this is spoken in the, in the, uh, in the third person, uh, but it's basically Corey has dissected the minds of thousands of thought leaders. So you don't have to. Yeah. And well, that's, and that's it. That is- I mean, that what I've tried to do once I got to a certain number, um, a lot of people have, have said, so you're like a modern day Napoleon Hill. And, you know, I'll take that compliment every day of the week. And for those that don't know, Napoleon Hill wrote Think and Grow Rich, one of the most successful self-help books mm-hmm. of all time. And he, and really he built his whole business and career off of interviewing the likes of Andrew Carnegie and Thomas Edison, Henry Ford. And so, um, yeah, what I've been trying to do is dissect these thought leaders and get inside their mind and then figure out two things. One, what do they share in common that most people don't do? And mm-hmm. then what do they do differently that most mm-hmm. people don't do? And so, and, and there's, you know, there's a fine line between the two of those, but the, what they do differently is they might even do it different than their colleagues. They might even do it different than other influencers. And I want to know what that one thing is 
that none of us are doing yet. And then again, I want to know what's the thing that uh, all the high achievers are doing, but nobody else is. And so I even go to the percentages. What is the top thing they have in common? And, and I'll drop it with the two seconds without any fanfare. The top thing they're all, they all share is they're all living on purpose. Mm. So they figured out what their calling is and they're living on purpose. And that's not to be confused with uh, living with passion or right. finding passion because I used, my show used to be called Conversations with Passion. And I had so many people near the end start complaining about how I'm sick of people saying you need to find your passion or you're not living a full life. And so I want to, you know, I want to give a distinction that when I say live on purpose, to me, passion is what you do. Purpose is why you're doing it. To me, your purpose will rarely ever change. Your passion might change a hundred times in your life. So my passion could have been stand up and right. why I was doing it was to put a smile on someone's face. And then it changed the speaking and right. then it expanded to podcasting and expanded to writing. And so that passion could change multiple times. Your purpose for most people might only change two or three times in your life. So what I'm saying is they live on purpose. They figured out what their calling is. And that's what they spend their time doing. Right. So never work another day in your life because you're living on purpose. Well, you know what? I, I, was, I, did talk for, well, I did talk for a group of financial service planners. And I said, can you retire at 20 if you haven't invested the way that you guys suggest? And, and I said, how many people think you can? There's 300 people in the room and like four hands went up. And I knew that was going to be what it was because they're thinking, how could you possibly retire? And I said, you don't get an inheritance. You don't get any free money. Not, you know, nothing has yeah. changed. Can you do it? And they all said, no. And I said, well, I'm going to prove to you that you can. And, but what I did was I changed the distinction. I reframed what retirement means. And to me, retirement, because we, we talk about retirement is leaving your job, finishing the job that you don't like doing. Right. So to me, you're working when you're doing a job, but when you're doing what you love, it's not working. Right. So to me, I said, I stopped working at, tw at 20, haven't worked a day in my life. And if you catch me working, you let me, let me know and I'll stop. You know, and so I said to that group, I said, I'm on the, and so I retired at basically 20 because I stopped working, whatever working is. And it's funny because uh, after the talk, when I was going into the elevator, three of the younger guys jumped in front of the elevator and said, just wanted to let you know, we're starting tomorrow. We're going on the Corey Poirier retirement plan. <laughs> they got it. But to your point, to me, whatever we want, because there's people, most people that have found what they love, they're working what we want to call working. They're going at 80 and 85. And not, I just interviewed Bob Proctor. He's 85 and he seems like a 30-year-old. Yeah. If, if I said to Bob Proctor, when are you going to retire? He'd be like, what are you talking about? You're yeah. off your rocker. It doesn't even make sense to him. So to my point of that is, as far as retiring goes, if you take the money part out of it, you can retire anytime you're ready. Right. As far as having the money to not work again, well, my argument to that is, why would you want to have enough money to not do what you love? Like, yes, you want to have the money to have all the freedom. Yes, you might want to have the money just to have the comfort of having the money. Sure. But if you're only doing it for the sake of not doing what you love, to me, that's counterintuitive. That's counterintuitive. Like, why would you want to go, okay, now I should just stop doing what I love doing because I have enough money in the bank. Right. To me, that's more of a reason to do it. Now, like you said, you can actually impact more lives because right. you have money in the bank to do it. I think, and I think that's what happens. I think, you know, I, as a coach, I see people wake up in, in their, you know, late sixties and, and go, okay, I've, I've achieved my million dollars. I did it. Um, I've got the house. I got the key. I'm not happy. What, what can I do to change my life? And what they do ultimately is figure out how they can help other people. And it all changes for them. That perspective changes. Right. And, and they're, they become happy again. They, it's not about making the money. It, it, it's, it's about achieving things. I think people like to achieve goals and they like to feel good about, you know, accomplishments and w whether that's helping you or, or building a house or whatever it is, right. People, people feel good about that. And so um, that's an important thing that people need a purpose. There it is. They just need a purpose. 
100%. You always have to have a purpose. I want to talk about, if you don't mind, can we talk about the keys in the book a little bit? Yeah. Okay. Um, like the first key is, is, is to, is to practice um, the law of action. And I think that's really clever. I have that in my book too, because, you know, people talk about law of attraction and they go, oh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You know what? You kind of have to help it along a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I like that. So t- why don't you, you bring that in. You talk about it a little bit. Well, I'm going to give um, Lisa Nichols a little plug here for a second because Lisa was in the secret and yeah. she said something when I brought up the law of attraction to her versus law of action, meaning doing one on its own or both of them together. And I, I believe if you put both of them together, you're going to get results on steroids. Yes. Um, and so I brought it up to Lisa and said, you know, you were in the secret. What are your thoughts on this? Like, do you feel, cause I, and I said, a lot of people tell me, and it's what my perspective was, but a lot of people tell me it was great. It was an awakening. It, it impacted millions of people and all those kind of great things. However, the people that didn't get it where they struggled, I think was because the movie kind of presented it like you'll have a motorbike outside by tomorrow if you start thinking about a motorbike tonight. Right. And for most people, it doesn't work that way. And I, I said, like, there wasn't really a whole lot of focus on what actions you have to actually take to make this happen in your life. And so I brought this up to Lisa Nichols, and she said, for a couple of years, she was out talking about abundance and the action you have to take. And she gave the greatest, for me, greatest vision that I saw, like the greatest, she described she it in such a visual way that it summed up everything in a nutshell. And what she said was, if you were to sit on your couch for a year and you had the most beautiful vision board, like a vision board that people rated it, a team of, I don't, she didn't go this far, I'm adding this in, but a committee rated it, you know, 10 out of 10, everybody rated it 10 out of 10, best vision board ever made. And you looked at it at every commercial break for that whole year. You know, so you've done more vision board than most people in the world, but you never got off the couch. All you're going to have at that end of the year is a big lump in your couch. To me, that sums it up right there. Yeah. You, you, if, if there's a magnet that's trying to send stuff your way, you at least need to step in front of it. Yeah. You can't sit beside looking at the thing going past you and then saying uh, manifestation doesn't work. Right. And to be honest, I've even got away from using the, like, the term myself, law of attraction, and simply talked about manifestation. Yeah. Because that's the bringing it to life part. And to me, manifestation is a combination of those two, action and attraction. Yes. And I gave the example in the book about how, to me, this is a, a visual to it as to why I think you need to have the action. Is I gave the example that I made a list. Uh, early in the year of who I want to share the bill with of speakers. I hadn't shared the bill at that point years ago with a, a top name speaker. So I made a list and said, who do I want to share the bill with? And on the top of the list, I put Deepak Chopra. And I, for, I didn't do anything with it for like two months and nothing happened, of course. And then, but of course I had it on vision board and nothing was happening. And based on the law of attraction on its yeah. own, I should it was on the vision board. They should have just called me and said, we want to book you, but yeah. it wasn't happening. So I said, okay, maybe I need to take some action with this. And so Deepak was at the top of the list. And the only action I took at that point is I just searched, where can I find that he's speaking this year? And he was only speaking at one place where there were other speakers on the bill, because most of his events are like an evening with Deepak Chopra. Right. And so I found one place, lo and behold, it was near me. It was actually only like an hour's drive away. And wow. I reached out to the organizers and said, hey, I, you know, I'd love to speak at your event. I'm willing to speak for free. And at this point, I was already getting thousands as a speaker. And I said, I would like to speak for free. And they're like, you know, we'd love to have you, but we're already full and they didn't have any spots left. And, and the call for speakers was closing that night or something like that. And so I said, okay, well, I'd like to leave, leave, leave my name in for next year. And I got a call a couple of days later and they said, Corey, you know, we were looking at what you want to speak on. We had one cancellation. We had a waiting list and people were above you, but we like what you want to speak on more. So we want to see if you might be interested in coming in for a meeting to see if we, you're a good fit for the event. 
ultimately I ended up speaking at the event. Now I did speak for free, which is again what I offered, so that's on me. I uh, did share the bill with Deepak Chopra and uh, the local um, uh, local news broadcasting uh, group called Eastlink TV came in and filmed me. And then they aired it like 15, I think it was 15 times a week for, wow. the, for a whole month. There you go. So getting a lot of coverage out of it. But the point of this whole story is that I got, I got booked because I reached out to them and said, is there a spot? And then I said, I'd like to be in there for next year. What are the odds you think? If I wouldn't have reached out to them that day, now this, it was call, the call was closing tomorrow. They had a waiting list already. What are the odds they would have randomly said, let's reach out to a guy, even though we don't need more speakers and yeah. bring him to share the bill with Deepak. So I may have speak, uh, shared the bill with one of the other speakers on that list, but I certainly wouldn't have with Deepak Chopra without that action. And to Absolutely me, that's not example. The reason it worked is because I practiced action and I had it on a vision board. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I have a, I have a couple of things I call Frankieisms, And one of them is that opportunities aren't lost. They're not actioned upon. You know, and, and I think that's kind of sets that example. Right? What did you speak on? That one, I spoke on the uh, five weeds we must pull from our life. That was a really good talk. That was a really good talk. Well, yeah. And the reason you know that is because that's, that was my uh, first TEDx. TEDx talk. Yeah. So it was my first TEDx talk and I spoke on it um, already. I already delivered my TEDx talk. And so that's why I spoke on it there. I say that because usually TEDx doesn't want you to be delivering the talk elsewhere until you deliver it in front of them. So I had already delivered the talk. I was able to send them a video of it and they liked it. And they said, let's bring you in for that. So yeah, that's what I spoke on at the event. And it was, I got to meet about eight other people that I'm still in contact with now, all these years later too. That's awesome. That's awesome. All because of action. All because of action. And so the other number two is expand your comfort, expand your comfort zone. And I, that is so important. And I think that people, um, that, that's probably the biggest inhibitor really of, of people doing anything is, is the fear of coming out of your comfort zone. hundred percent. And I, I, this wasn't intentional. I, until you just said it this way, until I heard it myself, I just, I didn't realize until now that that's my second TEDx talk. <laughs> so we just talked about success key number one. And I referenced my first TEDx talk and my second talk was about good. Comfort zone. that was and it's funny because I didn't talk about, weeds inside the chapter but you maybe no. got me to talk about it. you brought it out of me now yes. so uh so yeah so as far as the comfort zone i believed it so much in it so much that i developed a whole talk around it and essentially what i talked about is how for me everything opened up the world opened up to me once i expanded my comfort zone when i was inside my comfort zone i don't feel now knowing what i know i ever could have become the best version of myself inside my comfort zone i firmly believe all the things that I wanted were outside my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And so originally it was by accident that I expanded my comfort zone. Uh, for instance, when I did stand up comedy, that expanded my comfort zone. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah. But I wasn't, I was tricked to be on the stage as it was. So it wasn't a plan. Then I, um, after I got back outside my comfort zone, I, uh, I wanted to, I went to Tofino, British Columbia, and I ended up surfing, even though I can't swim. And so that was way outside my comfort zone. But I don't think I would have done that if I hadn't done stand up comedy. And because the swimming thing, was on the ground. It was a little easier to take on, but then I did it. And I'm like, well, I survived this. Then I went skydiving because I was like, okay, well, if I can survive the swimming thing and I can't swim, well, I can survive skydiving. If I'm with going tandem with somebody else who knows how to skydive yeah. and I can build the experience. And so my point is, is that all those things wouldn't happen if I stayed inside my tiny comfort zone. And so with my talk, if people are so inclined to check it out, uh, I give three steps for how to get outside your comfort zone. And, you know, one of them is basically figuring out what your comfort zone looks like in the first place. You know, what's mm -hmm. inside your comfort zone, what's outside of it. And then figuring out what are the baby steps you'd have to take 
to take the big step outside your comfort zone in that one area. So for example, stand-up comedy, what are the things you would have to do if you weren't like me and you actually plan to get on a stand-up stage? And so you might, it might mean buying a comic book or a comedy book. The Comedy Bible actually is one of the great book to buy if you want to do that. Or it might mean going and watching local stand-up comedy. It might mean watching comedy on HBO and studying the comics and taking notes about why the jokes work. So you can do all these baby steps and reward yourself for each one. And then eventually your comfort zone's expanded enough that when you actually go to get on the stage, it's not as scary anymore. Right. So that's step number one, just as an example. But yeah, I believe everything happens outside your comfort zone. Um, the key number three, we talked actually about it at the top of the hour, um, was learning about focus. And, and you talked about, you put your phone away. You, you, there's no distractions. You focus 100% on the person that you're talking to or on yourself, on the, on the, the things that you put out for yourself. So good job on that. <laughs> well, and I call it the power of no. It's being able to say no to the thing. Here's, and for somebody that wants a strategy for how to do this in a matter of 30 seconds, you heard me earlier say what my mission statement was. Write your mission statement. And it could be as simple as I want to be a good parent, but figure out what it is. Yeah. Um, write the, the three or four things that you have to do. What are the character traits? What are the, you know, what are the things that you have to be doing to stay in line with that? Yep. And then say no to everything that doesn't align with that. So for me, if it's not going to help me give back, so donate, motivate, inspire, educate, or entertain. If it's going to be zero of those, it's the easiest no I'll ever say in my life. If it's going to be two of those, it's probably still going to be a no without a regret. Yeah. If it's going to be four or five of those, meaning it's covering off almost every one of them, it's probably going to be the easiest yes without a regret. I turned down a TV show based on it not being aligned with any of those five things. Yeah. And I would regret it. As younger, when I was getting into That's this, disciplined, you know, that is. It's really disciplined. I, when I was younger, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Yeah. I would have actually said yes. Yeah. yeah high paying clients because it wasn't aligned. But again, without, until I knew that mission statement, I didn't know what to put it up against. So I was like, ah, maybe it'll, and here's my thinking when I didn't know, and I wasn't focused, I would say, maybe it'll turn into something, you know, synchronicity wise, maybe it'll develop into something. And it could, but so could the other thing that I'm saying yes to that I should be saying yes to. You know, it, it, you're making me think for a second because I, I really, uh, as a coach, the very first thing I ask a client would be, what are your top five values? And I think the, the ability to do, what, to do what you do lies somewhere in your value system. I would say so, yeah. Yeah. I think those all align with the values, like giving back and uh, putting a smile on people's face and, uh, and, and all of this stuff with integrity. I mean, that, it's, it's kind of the thing that's unsaid, but you have to be able to sleep at night. That, that's right. a big part of it. And, you know, I, a lot of people say to me, how do you get so much done? And clearly you don't sleep. And the truth is, I won't, because I have two kids now, I won't say I sleep this minute, amount of time, but I'm in bed, I would say, probably about 10 hours a night. Really? Wow. Yeah. And, well, see, we, because of having such a young kid, uh, the three-year-old, we start trying to put him in bed around eight. Some nights it works, some nights it doesn't. But a lot of nights, I go to, if we're putting him in bed by nine, like meaning if it takes us till nine, I just go to sleep at the same time. Oh, okay. And, and I don't start my days usually till about 7.38. I'm not like a 5 a.m. guy. So just that alone means on the nights when he sleeps all the way through, I'm getting more than eight hours sleep. Well, more than eight. So, so what I'm saying though is as well is I can sleep at night. Yeah. I would be, I would be up tossing and turning all night if I wasn't living with and serving with integrity. And, you know, I had a conversation with a big name author um, and I said, you know, I just can't do that whatever this, that was at the time. And he said, that's because people like you and me, Corey, we would never be able to go to sleep at night. We'd never be able to look anybody in the face. It's true. If it was that way. And, and, you know, I'd love to say it was always that way. It wasn't necessarily always that way. I wasn't too far away from that. I wasn't, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum where I could just like tip a person over walking past them and laugh. But yeah. I, mean, I was certainly like, uh, you know, 
take back when I was a little kid and I smoked, taking cigarettes from my mom and not having any guilt about it, like yeah. small things. But yeah. I mean, I was also a kid, right? I was also 10 and yeah. 12. But my, my point is, is that um, who I am today, I it has to be with integrity, whatever I'm doing. Like if I've had, you know, I've had times, I'm sure we all have, where I've went into a store and, you know, I bought something and let's say I bought something and I'm just using an example, but let's say I had used a $50 bill and they're giving me change for a hundred dollars. Right. For whatever reason, because their head's not there. Yeah. Well, I'm not the person that could just keep the extra money. No, I couldn't either. I, it, was, it actually scares me. <laughs> I have to give it back. I have to give it karma. I'm scared. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's the thing, right? Yeah. My, my, my daughter was, was, I got a call. I said, your daughter, you know, shoplifted. I go, no, she didn't. She's afraid to steal. She's afraid to have anything that do anything wrong. And there, and it came out as they investigated, it wasn't her, it was somebody else. But I knew that about her, you know, cause she's like me. So yeah. <laughs> I totally get it. I, I, you know, I'd love to, I'd lo- well, I should plead the fifth, but I will say, because I got, I get uh, caught and the items got turned back. So it's not like it's something I did. That's, and plus the statute of limitations is probably a lot of years. Yeah. But when I was, when I was 16, there were like three times in my life that I was with friends and we stole from the store. All three times we got caught. Uh, one of the times we got called in the principal's office. I got grounded two of the three times. So clearly it wasn't my calling. I was. Yeah. Yeah. Fingers weren't that slick. No. Oh, that's kind of funny. You know, kids are all, always tempted to do that, but you learn. I, I, I remember walking my son back into a store, give him back the chocolate bar he stole. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, the one thing I know about myself when I was that young, I tried one time on my own and I couldn't do it. Like I tried over and over and couldn't do it. Uh, so the three times I did it were with other friends. So I yeah. actually even needed people there, not to get caught with me, but just people there because I was so nervous. I would have dropped the item on the floor. Yeah. Talk, talking about doing things with other people. Now, I don't know if, it, if, if I can't remember where I read it. it might have been in the book. I don't know. Um, but you did talk about with um, you and Shelly sitting on the couch devouring these success videos and TED Talks and whatever. So she had just as much of an in, interest or did you influence her to watch this or did you do it together? Or did you pump each other? Go, let's let's figure this out so we can like get ahead in our lives. Like what happened there? So, I mean, there's a bit of Yes to all that. Meaning there's, there's, I, I was definitely, I would say the person that discovered and I, I would say when, when I did my first TEDx talk, she probably hadn't seen one yet. So I would definitely be the person that probably brought the TEDx to us. So, um, you know, I brought it to us, but she's the one that came up with the idea of doing it. And we got to get back to it. We did it for quite a while, but a, a TED Tuesday, where every Tuesday we'd each pick, we'd pick the same video, no matter where I was traveling. And then we would uh, get on the phone or talk or whatever, even email or text and talk about what we learned in that video and how we can use it in our life or business. Nice. And so that, you know, so that was her idea, but I was the one who's, let's say, brought the TEDx to us. Sure. But I would also add that she's always been into, uh, she's one of those people that she's a professional learner. Like she would, she'll always, every day of the week, if you gave her the right learning opportunity and excess money, she would invest in learning. Yeah. And so, uh, so it's, it wasn't a stretch, you know, for like, it wasn't like either of us was pushing the other one. It was more just like, it, it was a common interest. And, you know, one of our first trips together, I won't say dates, but our first trips for uh, two weeks type thing together was to go to Orlando. And it was actually uh, to see the Hayos conference. It was the Hayos conference. It ended up becoming really significant. We bought the tickets when Wayne Dyer was still alive and he passed away before we got there. So oh, that ended up becoming wow. the Wayne Dyer Memorial Conference yeah. and it was one where his whole family was there it was the only one they were all at and um and so it was a very special moment but my point is her and I both 
were the type of people that both agreed, let's go, both got jazzed up about it, sat together at the event, took notes, you know, so we are both similar. Uh, the last event I got her to was Brendan Burchard in Phoenix. And she had been wanting to go for a while and we sat together, took notes, same thing. So I don't need to know that either of us had to push the other one on, but I was probably the one that brought certain, the, the things themselves, like let's go to Brendan Burchard, let's watch TEDx. I brought those in, but she you know, came up with ideas for how we could actually use them more efficiently than I was. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great to have a partner that, that you know, has that kind of symbiotic relationship and just improves instead of takes, right? There we go. We circled back. (laughs) I've had the opposite. So yeah. Yeah. Okay, Corey, we're almost out of time. Um, Gosh, you got so much on the go. You got the blue, the blue talks that have started and, and the book is about to come out. When's it coming out? Tell everybody. So so there's a catch 22 with the book. The book is technically out now. So people can buy it now. Uh, I'm going to do it. uh, So we, the original plan was the book was dropped on March 17th. Uh, If that date sounds familiar to people, uh, it's because it was four days after they called uh, coronavirus a pandemic. So that was our print launch date. So everything got changed. Yes, yeah, also Meaning, Women's uh, International Women's Day, because I launched two books on that date. So we launched the digital book version of the book in February, the month before. And it hit five bestsellers listed really well. And then we were planning to do the same thing with the print book. But then coronavirus happened, and it just changed everything. Like, I was actually yeah. supposed to be at my publisher's uh conference on the 13th was our red carpet day and we had to cancel the trip on the way there and so so what i decided was i was going to push it to fall so i'm going to do a full real launch uh likely end of october but having said that anybody listening now uh the idea of doing the launch is to spur a lot of excitement at once but i want to impact people's lives whether it's at that time or not so if you want to get the book uh, it's already out uh it's it's been out for a little bit now you can buy it as a print book it's actually even got the new cover on um, we had the bestseller thing, so that would be in the cover. And, uh, we and, and you're still offering the free, the free um, audiobook? Yeah, 100%. The purchase? Yeah, yeah. there you go. So and for those all, who don't like to read? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's right, it's on the second page of the book, tells you how to get that. And, um, and we also were blessed and lucky enough to have T. Harv Becker uh, come on as one of the endorsements. So we changed the cover to have him on it too. Uh, mm-hmm. So we made a few little changes and a few things inside. And so the latest version even, if you order right now, it's 100% uh, available. And can, you want me to give people the link where they can get that or, okay. Yeah, so the, the easiest way to get that is the book of why.com. I like okay. to keep everything easy. The book of why. Book of why.com. So it's, it's easy to go there and uh, every, not every, but a lot of the retailers are on there. So target Walmart, Amazon, you can pick which one you want. So if you want to learn how to be um, a TEDx speaker, Corey offers courses in that. If you want to um, pretty much do anything, Corey offers <laughs> Well, I'll say mostly around influencing. If you want to, <laughs> my whole my whole thing is to help people amplify their message. There you go. So, uh, so whether that's they want to get on stages, they want to write in books. Yeah, if you do, if you're looking for though anything to do with getting your uh, a raised platform or uh, getting your brand to the next level, uh, whether again that's through stage, through uh, interviews, uh, audio interviews, print, whatever that looks like, that's pretty yeah. much where I. Which is the one my, website that covers everything, Corey. Poirier.com is, or which one covers everything? The best one probably is thatspeakerguy.com. Okay. Thatspeakerguy.com. And the reason I say that is the only link that's not on there out of everything we've talked about would be the Blue Talks link just because it's so new. Uh, but our social media channels are all at the top. So that's why it's the hub because you can go on there and then follow me or connect with me or reach out 
on any of the social media platforms. And when you do that, you're going to see that all the details and things happening with Food Talks as well. There you go. That's speakerguide.com. Go there and you will find everything. We're going to say goodbye to Facebook. Goodbye, Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and 